I'm going to tell you, I'm sitting here as Dr. E, but I'm a mom. I'm a mom of a child that had SM. And I remember when my Sophie was as bright as can be, reading early, doing everything. And I got so defensive when someone's like, she needs to be evaluated. So I remember that feeling back then because I'm like, wait, she's super smart. Welcome back to another episode of the Unspoken Words podcast, hosted by Dr. Lisa Chopin Blum and the Smart Center. I'm Brandon, Unspoken Words podcast producer. This episode features a live chat with parents, beautifully moderated by the Smart Center's Communicamp Director and Clinical Care Coordinator, Lisa Marie Vargas. The episode focuses on children aged 9 to 12 with selective mutism. Dr. E and Lisa Marie are joined by three parents, Daphne, Edwin, and Julie. These parents engage in conversation, sharing their experiences, and also asking Dr. E questions relating to their children's specific circumstances. Before we get started, just a friendly reminder. If you have any questions on anything covered in today's episode, please head to selectivemutismcenter.org forward slash ask Dr. E. That's A-S-K dash D-R dash E. We read all your questions and do our best to answer them on podcast episodes like this, blog posts, and on social media. So without further ado, please enjoy the latest episode of the Unspoken Words podcast. All right. Hi, everyone. Let's begin with some introductions. If you can state your name, your child's age, and where you're from, feel free to mention if you've worked with us or if you're completely new to Collective Mutism and the Smart Center. So my name is Daphne Wilson. I'm based in Dallas, Texas. My daughter is nine years old, and I've been following you guys on Instagram. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Daphne. Um, and Erwin, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, my name's Erwin. Um, I'm from Springville, California. I have a 12-year-old daughter. She just turned 12 like last week. She was diagnosed with SM at an early age, maybe around four or five, but she's made great progress thanks to the strategies here at the Smart Center. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming back. Julie, if you don't mind stating your name, your child's age, and where you're from. Okay. Hi, I'm Julie. I'm from Connecticut, and my daughter is nine, and she was diagnosed with SM when she was four and a half. So we'll get started with one of Daphne's questions. So the themes of the questions for this episode are going to touch on school, testing, and comfort. So Daphne submits a question about school. And you say, how do I best advocate for my daughter in the school? We attend a private school. What type of accommodation should we ask for? From what I understand, your daughter is nine years old. She's in a private school. And in order to continue, they are saying that they need some sort of an evaluation. Is that what you said? Yes. Like if you're in uh, like a special education evaluation to accommodate her. Not speaking. Your school being in a private school is saying, Daphne, is that your daughter, in order to continue, needs to have a special education evaluation to see if she meets the criteria to get an IEP? Well, they I, they don't do IEPs in the, in the private schools, exactly. but exactly. is what they say. Okay, so they will honor an evaluation. Does it need to be through? So let me just tell you how private schools work, because I, I don't I pretty much think it's the same throughout the country is that when you're in a private school, you, they, by law, don't have to provide you with special education. They can say, we don't accept that, that student that has X, Y, or Z. 
um, in a public school, yes, they need to be able to free and appropriate education and they need to be able to give you either a 504 or an IEP based on certain criteria. When you're in a private school, it doesn't necessarily mean that. You can get special education through the public school services. It doesn't mean they have to implement it into the private school, but you could still go to a public school. Like I've had kids over the years that the private school would not do a whole lot, but they went for speech. They went through to a social worker, a psychologist. They got the evaluation at the public school. I'm not a fan of that because as most of you know of my work, it's it's in the environment that the child is in is that we need to work and we need to help her build or him build that connection, that comfort, and then interventions and progression of communication. So the first thing that I we recommend to all families is that you need a diagnosis. You have to have a diagnosis of it. I recommend getting a diagnosis from a licensed professional that can tell, say your daughter meets the criteria for selective mutism in your case. Maybe it's even social anxiety since a large percentage have that. And based on the whys of SM, some kids' parents already know that, yes, my child either has a learning issue, maybe they're on the autism spectrum, maybe they have speech and language issues. So you may know that. I'd say far majority of families don't know that when they come to the Smart Center. We we often are the ones to say, hey, your child is screening for this. So my recommendation is you can get a letter from your pediatrician. If you see a therapist, get get a letter saying your child meets that. You can do one of two things. You can go to your public school and request an evaluation for an IEP, which is, you know, an individual educational plan where they'll do a full evaluation. I'm not trying to minimize that, but at the same time, you need to make sure that those individuals are comfortable assessing a mute child if your child is mute with teachers and peers and like more of a global mutism or really doesn't have a means of verbalizing because we see way too often schools don't know how to assess kids with SM. And what ends up happening is they'll base it on either what the parents say, or they'll say in there, we weren't able to evaluate, which is why for us, we did that speech and language research that shows that you can use parents as evaluators to do testing. So we do so much testing at the smart center, whomever you see, should be able to give you recommendations. If all they need in a private school, which sometimes that's all they need, you don't need to go through the testing. You may just need to get a diagnosis and then work with a licensed professional that can write up or work with your school closely on developing school-based accommodations and interventions. Because in private school, you don't necessarily need to have the full testing if they're not gonna be accommodating for that. You can go privately and get that testing if you're concerned with anything else going on that you want a full understanding of your daughter, whether it's psychoeducational, speech and language, whatever it might be, OT, sensory. But the point I'm making is you may only need for a private school, a doctor or a therapist that has a lot of knowledge in this area that can work with your school to develop school-based accommodations and interventions. Sometimes it's being socially anxious mm-hmm. in the public school system. They, if you're looking for an IEP, which again, we can get, it's a whole nother podcast getting into 504s and IEPs because just having a 504 doesn't require all of that, right? But you don't have to go through all that testing, especially if you feel strongly your child doesn't have any of the other, what I call the whys of SM, 
because intelligence is not necessarily, in other words, being highly intelligent, you can, not your daughter, but a, a individual with selective mutism can have another Y of SM. And here's what I, here's why I try to explain this to parents. And I'm going to tell you, I'm sitting here as Dr. E, but I'm a mom. I'm a mom of a child that had SM. And I remember when my Sophie was as bright as can be, reading early, doing everything. And I got so defensive when someone's like, she needs to be evaluated. So I remember that feeling back then because I'm like, wait, she's super smart. And I'm not saying your child needs an evaluation, maybe an evaluation by this therapist that can write up her accommodations and interventions if that's what's needed. And sometimes we've seen kids that come to the center that are gifted education, but they do have underlying speech and language issues, or they do have some sensory processing that's affecting or something else that's affecting their ability to communicate within the school environment. It doesn't have to be related to intelligence, but it's their ability to function. Because what I often say is it's functioning socially, emotionally, and academically, all three of those. And so if one of those areas is affected, then we need to work on those areas. Typically, when an individual is functioning well academically, is functioning in school, she's not completely shut down, she's nonverbal, um, there is no underlying real concern for learning issues and other challenges that are getting in the way for her ability to reach a potential of, of confident social communicator, as I say, then you can pretty much have what we call a 504. But in a private school, it's their willingness. So what I'm hearing from you is this may not be the right school. If you meet with them and you go over the recommendations that your therapist is recommending, and they're like, look, we're not going to do the buddy process. We're not going to do small groups. We're not going to ask questions a certain way or have a friendship group or a lunch bunch or whatever is needed for that child and then implement the necessary strategies for your daughter that'll work. Then I would, I would consider a different school. So your question, Julie, is, is public school, public school versus private school which one is more effective for a child with SM? And so we just heard from Dr. E about, you know, what kind of accommodations or, or efforts you have to make within the private school. But most importantly, it's about working with the team there. And I'll let Dr. E get into that and how she weighs those two. Okay. Yeah, that's a difficult question. And I'll tell you why. Because you can have wonderful public schools that have wonderful resources with staff that's very receptive and willing, and they are very appropriate with their evaluation. They then are able to accommodate. They're willing to work with your treatment professional to help them with school-based accommodations and interventions, and they're able to implement that under either a 504 or an IEP if needed in the public school setting, and it goes smoothly. You can have the same thing in a private school. You can find a warm, nurturing school that, although you don't necessarily have an IEP or a 504, they are able to utilize resources that they have in-house. They can do a lunch bunch. They can do a friendship group if that's recommended. They can, they're willing to meet with your treatment professional to get educated on how to implement strategies for your child, how to accommodate your child, and it goes really well. And that happens. You can also be in a public. And so with a public school, a lot of families say, well, in a, pri in a public school, I'm able to get an IEP and I'm able to get a 504 
And I don't know which episode it is, but I call it a, a 504 IEP or SHMA EP. It really doesn't matter what the name of the plan is, assuming that child gets the help and support that they need. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So with that yes. said, I can't give one better than, than another. I will say by nature, public schools have to provide accommodations, interventions. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean you're going to have staff that are, are implementing properly or even willing to do trainings. You may not have that, but you might have that. So I don't think one, Julie, is better than another. It depends on what that school is, look, is able to do for your child. But you do know and guarantee that public schools have to provide something when your child meets the criteria for having a disability that is affecting their ability to communicate, which is a major life activity we're all deserving of. So without a doubt, they have to, but it doesn't mean it's an easy road. And there are times they do testing through IEPs, for example, that the school will say the child is ineligible. And you look back on the testing and they didn't know how to assess the child. Or they're like, oh, the child is just choosing and refusing to speak and we're going to put a behavioral plan together. Meanwhile, I know this just happened to us not too long ago. I had an eight-year-old child I saw for a two-day intensive. And during that two-day intensive, I'm like, I think something else is going on learning-wise. Like, I'm a little bit concerned. She's avoiding schoolwork. She throws things. She plays with her friends. She can talk to a few kids. But anything academic-based is causing this child to shut down and become anxious and Re only reinforces her anxiety. The school's like, testing was fine. I said to the family, I really feel in my gut, my intuition, I, I, that's what I go with after this many years. I really recommend you get private testing because I think they're missing something because they only put together a behavioral plan that was all about speaking and not speaking. They missed the boat completely with this little girl. Needless to say, so I, I'm seeing them, they had the, two, the testing done and she had um, ADHD and she had dyslexia. And so she had some learning issues. And so what happens with a, a child, especially very aware children, and most of our kids with SM are incredibly sensitive. They're very aware. They're very perceptive. She saw her peers in her class doing their work. It came easier to her and for her, easier to them than to her. So what happens when a child isn't able to keep up or they can't do it? You avoid or you act out. So you either avoid it. So you look like you're not interested. You don't do it or you act out. And she was doing both. So the interesting part is that that's why I'm saying, and that's why like for families that we work with, we feel really strongly to look at those evaluations that are done because too often schools, unfortunately, don't always know how to test these kids. And so we do tons of independent educational vows because the schools will say, look, we couldn't get it. Or the family's like, no, this isn't right. But sometimes they are right. I'm not saying that they're always wrong. Obviously, many are right, but my point is, even when you say, I'm getting an IEP or I'm having a 504 and I'm in a public school, it has to be right for your child. And it's also not a cookie cutter. We also hear very often, oh, we've had two students with SM. We know exactly what to do for accommodations and interventions. And I know, Erwin, you, you relate to this, right? Like, they think they know, right? Schools think they know. And no, every child is different. If I haven't seen two identical kids in all the years I've been doing it, chances are those two that those schools, that school knows are not the same as the child that they're, you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. 
And something Lucy touched on too is that there's a big misconception that these kids are defiant or non-compliant. And that's another question that Julie had submitted. So how do we work effectively with the school team, Dr. E? I think it's about educating them and taking it off you. Often when we work with families, they'll come to us where they're already in a battle a bit with their school. It's already frustrating. The school's already defensive. The parents are frustrated and we come in. Sometimes the school projects their frustrations on us, which happens a lot. But what I tell families is back up, present this literature to them, get an evaluation by an expert that knows what they're doing. Someone that really can evaluate your child, go to them with that paperwork and say, look, my child was evaluated by a, a professional that is very trained and has expertise in this area. And this is what they're seeing. So you take it off of you. Too often schools do see our kids as being defiant and usually the ones that do just don't understand this. And I would say more times than not, and by far, I, I'm, I'm taking a leap here and saying 90 plus percent, 95, the majority of schools do come around when we back it up and we just explain it. So a real easy way is to show them documentation, meet with them, but also have your school trained by your professional that can really train them so that during that training, they understand that, look, a lot, you know, so-and-so, she's not being controlling. She's not being defiant. This is something that's hard for her. And it's something that can be scary. And as kids get older, and this podcast is for nine to 12 year olds, a lot of these kids have been this way for most of their school years. So they look comfortable often. They've learned how to exist in the school environment without having to verbalize or not verbal, you know, maybe verbalize a tiny bit, but they're not verbalizing. So they know how to get their needs met. Many kids are super bright, so they don't need to ask a lot of questions. And so kids have gone this many years in their schooling and they've learned to function. I often give it an example of a swimming pool, like kids that have selective mutism, the older they get, and the swimming pool is speaking, they may be afraid to swim, afraid to speak, or they don't speak, but they can run around the pool and do cartwheels. It's not till they get their toes wet or there's a thought of getting in the water that you see the fear. So for a nine-year-old plus, they can exist in the classroom like professional mimes. Many of them are very, very comfortable. They've got their friends. They may have a few friends they're even verbal with or a teacher they speak to a little bit. They start to be able to verbalize some of them sometimes. To some, they may not be initiative, elaborative, expressive, or in a small group or large group, but you start to see them slowly emerge that way, but then they get stuck and they can't move forward. And schools will be, well, she's so comfortable, she's defiant. So again, the literature, the report that you can get, we use something at the center that I developed years ago. It's called the Selective Mutism School Evaluation Form. And what that is, is it tells me, it tells our clinicians, how is this child functioning in school? So it's an objective form and it says like academically how they're on grade level, above, below, starting, completing tasks on time. Are there accommodations? How are they communicating one-on-one with teachers, peers in small groups and large groups, their overall comfort? And so what, what you get from there is like a kind of a picture of what the child is doing in school. And from that, I can learn a lot. And so throughout treatment, we get that so that we can begin to compare and see where is the child growing, what accommodations, what interventions do we need to change based on their stages on the bridge and accommodating their whys. So 
I hope that's helpful. No, that was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Daphne, Erwin, do you have any other thoughts to add while we're on the topic of school? I, I was trying to think. So having a, a therapist there all the time would be the best no, situation for the therapist. child. No, no, no. You don't need a therapist in the classroom. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that a lot of schools have on staff a school psychologist, a counselor, a social worker, a, possibly a speech and language professional. Under a 504 in a public school, often working with a counselor doing, like if your treatment provider is recommending small groups and what to do in those small groups. Because I often say, everyone can have small groups, everyone can have the buddy process. It's what you do, how you do it, when you do it, where you do it, and all of that. How do you ask questions? When do you ask questions? Who do you pair them with? Those that, that's the meat and potatoes. The actual framework has to be there for anything to take place, right? But the because you, progress doesn't tend to occur in a large group, a, a primary recommendation is small groups and buddy process because that allows the connection. Comfort precedes communication. Progress and doesn't tend to occur in a group. So we have to build comfort and relationships and do strategies and interventions, but start it away. For example, pairing and grouping the child with the same buddies over and over that you're working on, let's say, outside playdates with, doing small groups in the room. And when you bring up the subtherapist, that would be if a teacher has 15, 16, 17 kids, it's very almost impossible for that teacher to do a small group in the room. But having an assistant or a counselor come in and, let's say, do a small group. So... It doesn't have to do with their degree as much as their ability to be there to facilitate the strategies. I always say, don't wait, facilitate. So I see the role as a school professional, as a facilitator. I see the role of as a parent, as a facilitator. It's about you facilitating strategies and setting up the world for your child to make progress. Children on their own don't normally just make the progress. They might be invested in their treatment and be, oh, look, mom, we need to go practice our goals. And guess what I did today? That That's true. But for the most, for, for every child, it takes parent changes and teacher changes and educating others in their life to be able to help them make the, that progress by training them. So your therapist, that's the outside therapist that you're seeing, my recommendation for any of you is to have that therapist consult with your school. For all of our clients at the Smart Center, we do an initial training when they begin treatment for one hour. After that, it's 30 minutes as needed, which is every six to eight weeks or every couple months, whenever the child is reaching a standstill. If your child is going 10 days, two weeks with no progress, they need to be updated. What is not working? Are they not implementing the strategies? I have a nine-year-old nine client that at the camp, she did amazing Verbal as can be first day, no problem. In the center, verbal talks to every one of the staff members, school, she's making no progress. So I said to the dad, they had an initial training back in September and she made some progress, but nothing since. So you're talking what, six months? We need to meet with the school. Like what are they not, what is not happening in the school that this child is staying this way? And needless to say, they're not implementing the buddy process. They're not questioning the right way. This child does great with focusing on other kids first and a little general competition. And also she's really, really super smart. So she loves to help others. So as soon as you start finding what their gifts are, what they're good at giving big, like for that child, it worked. She did great with the write and read approach. So as soon as that they asked her a question and she wrote it, she miraculously began to read it. 
because that gave her comfort to be able to take the time to write and read. So if the school, no matter how much therapy you're in, if you're going every week, every day, if the school is not implementing strategies and interventions and accommodating your child, progress will be very limited. They have to have the education and training to know how to do things. Your child may on their own, if you're doing the buddy process and you're doing get togethers and you're coming in and doing things, your child will make progress. But since your child is in school for eight hours a day, they need to know, especially your children are getting to the age where they're going to start switching classes. Now you're going to be talking, going from elementary to middle schooler, and then all of a sudden they've got different teachers. And so it's a much more complicated process as kids get older. So they really want to get this underway. And when they do get a little older, they, the school needs to be educated. And they have to work together to see how in these classes can we do these things. I'd like to say that every year, every summer before school starts, we do a school consult with the Smart Center with the incoming teacher. And that has always been very helpful because we're, we're blessed to have a school that has teachers where they're all, you know, very open-minded about learning more about SM and learning how they can help our child. So it's, it's all, it's been very helpful. Like every year we do it every year before the school and I, year. And that's a good point. And here's what I want to say. Families say, how, how much, what if my child is, becomes a social, confident social communicator? She's verbal. He's verbal with his peers, his teachers, and he's making his needs known. He's functioning socially, emotionally, academically. Do we still need the training? And what I say to families is keep the accommodation intervention plan in place for at least one more year and make sure you go into the school year. Like Erwin, your daughter is verbal. She's doing great. She, but that security of knowing we're starting a new school year this was going to help the teachers just kind of be aware, especially when you have a strong social anxiety component, because that social anxiety component for a lot of our kids, that can stay with them, that kind of innateness of their of social anxiety. They become functioning. But if you have a child that has a lot of social anxiety, that is kind of, that's difficult. And sometimes as time goes on, they're verbal, they're communicative, but that they're it'll air its head of their social anxiety. Whereas if somebody has, if they don't have the social anxiety, let's say they have speech and language and we're able to accommodate them, that's what we're accommodating more. They're not shy, they're not timid, it's something else going on. So it really depends on your child and their needs and the teachers and the size of your class too, and the school's ability to do it. So I wanna move into some of Erwin's questions. They relate to this this cusp of becoming a teenager, this cusp of going into a new school like middle school where, you know, kids are expected to be a little more independent, dynamics like friendships change. And so he's submitted a few questions that are related to to comfort and things that evolve as they become, you know, preteens and teenagers. So Erwin, your first question was, how do you help, you know, 12-year-olds or, or children around this age be more of an advocate for themselves, how to be more proactive, and secondly, how to improve self-esteem at this age. So if you want to add a little more context to that, please feel free. Yeah, definitely. So uh, my daughter's at the age where she's you know, more, more self-conscious, body changes, you know, puberty. So she's, her friends are also going through the same changes. And 
and I'm just concerned that it might affect her self-esteem. And but she is willing to try new things. Actually, I'm very proud of that. That she's you know she's putting herself out there trying to you know learn new things, try new things that she hasn't tried before. And one of the questions that I asked was, now that she's verbal in almost all settings. So just to add a little more context, so she's she recently joined a children's theater group, and they're going to be performing, you know, in, in in a theater festival in a couple of weeks. And the the judges, most of their comments are, you know, after their performance are like, "You sing really well. You have a beautiful voice, but you just need to increase the volume a little bit." And she's a little self-conscious about that. But, you know, she's made a lot of progress. And the fact that she's willing to do that and she, she has, she has fun with that and she loves doing that is just such a big deal to us. So there's a few things you mentioning there that were really, you know, could really go off on a lot of tangents. You're absolutely right. They're at an age now where building independence and self-confidence is critical. And there's a lot of things that we can do in the school, in the home environment that will help them build that confidence. As parents of children that have struggles in this area, we have learned to help them and accommodate them. And in many ways, we've buffered them. And I've learned over the years that children are very dependent on their parents. I've noticed this, that there's a strong dependence. And so things like decision-making, kind of branching out and trying new things is much harder for this population for a variety of reasons. And parents jump in and they save the kids often and they'll answer for the kids often and they'll make decisions for them. And I noticed this a lot. And I've noticed that sometimes even when I'm doing telehealth, I'll ask a question and in the office too, and you'll see the child look right to the parents for whatever it is, even though they can communicate because they're so used to their parents doing, answering, and making decisions for them that the example I give is if you have, let's say you're, you have a partner and every time you guys go out driving on the weekends or wherever you're going on, let's say you're going on a vacation and your partner's driving, your partner puts the, you have it in your GPS, your, your maps or your ways, and you're the passenger in the car. And you didn't think about making a left or a right or how to get there. All of a sudden you got there. It's somewhat similar with our children. I need to preface this question of building independence because often our kids are just kind of going along and they're not necessarily building their own independence and self-confidence because they're so reliant on either their siblings or their parents and therefore, they're almost like, even when it comes to questions, they're not even ready for questions because everybody's answered for them. So they stop thinking about it. They're in the passenger seat. They may even be in the back back seat with earfo- earphones on. They're not thinking about it. And so what does that mean? It means that what we need to do is we need to think about how can we foster independence so that they become the driver of the car. And one way that is really easy to do is as they're preparing for middle school and eventually high school, provide opportunities for your child to make decisions that are appropriate with appropriate boundaries, of course. This could be choices that they make during the day, even as simple as as going out to a meal. Maybe they choose the location. Deciding on things, asking their opinion of things. 
helping them understand consequences of their choices. Believe it or not, it's hard. And I don't have any like research on this. I only have my clinical research, meaning like I just have seen from just the countless families I've worked with that so many kids as they get older and into the preteen teen years, they don't know how to make decisions well. They have difficulty problem solving because everyone's problem solved for them. And a lot of often it's because sometimes parents are afraid to like, it's easier to make that decision or she doesn't know how to do it. So I did it. And so what I would say to every parent listening to this is what opportunities can you, what opportunities are there in your home environment that you can help them foster some independence, decision-making problem solving, kind of helping them with critical thinking expectations, like structure, consistency, routine, and predictability that they need to kind of abide by that are age appropriate, fostering open communication, really asking their, their opinion on things, getting their thoughts. So it's, let's say an example just came up about a week or two ago where the child had a problem with one of, with the schoolwork, the homework, where the teacher <clears throat> marked an answer wrong when the answer was right but the child wrote the answer and it looked like an eight when it was a three. So in session, we talked about it and the child is like, my mom's going to do it. Mom's going to call the teacher. Mom called the teacher. And that's exactly what happened. But meanwhile, this was, you know, an 11 year old, this child as an 11 year old could have gone up to the teacher and said, Hey, I may, this is the right answer. But the parent was so used to saving the child that the child never even thought to, it wasn't even a thought in the family. Can that child go up and verbally communicate, I had this answer right, I think there was an error? Probably not in that case for that child yet. And even the write and read and show approach was too anxiety provoking. But we came up with a way that could have happened. One was an email. The child wasn't even comfortable sending an email. So what the child did is the child, the 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 parent, we had to start in that case where the child was able to send the email if the mom like wrote it in the child's, like we had to go back as far back as we could. So that child became proactive in their own life. So with a nine plus year old, that's still a little nine, but as you get to 10, 11, 12, what can they do? There's always a way for them to start to advocate for themselves and to be more independent and to make some of these decisions and problem solving. So I hope that's helpful, but the earlier you start that, the better it's going to be. Only because I see this tremendous lag in our population of children in these age ranges that have a lot of difficulty being able to be independent and their self-confidence and self-esteem. And that goes also into building up their skills, whatever that skill may be, to build their self-confidence as well. I will say Jobs at home, chores, responsibilities are also ways to foster independence and self-esteem. So these are just some things for you guys to think about. But what's going to happen is that's going to carry over into the school environment if you're doing all of these things now. It will carry over. And schools do this from the time they're in preschool. They have jobs in the classroom. They have things that they have to do. They have to make decisions. Teachers are asking them questions. Why do you want to do that? Where do you want to do that? And often as parents, we're protecting our kids. And I do think it stems from we've had to protect them. 
because it was so scary when they weren't able to talk and we didn't want them to be embarrassed. We struggled with some embarrassment of, oh, wait, she didn't answer. So let me answer. So there's a lot of stuff going on and floating around. I have a question. Um, so I know we're inching up on the last 10 minutes. I have another question that was submitted from a mom that's not on the chat right now, but it was a great question. It relates to this topic. She also has a nine and a half year old who's fully verbal. And her, her question is, what are the pros and cons to getting the diagnosis of SM lifted? Is there a risk that her mutism might return? So you know, similar to your case or when you have a fully verbal, you know, tween, you know, due to tons of life changes, like going to a new school, puberty, social pressures, you know, that could start, that's a very valid question. So Dr. E. So let me make sure I understand. You're saying, is there a risk to have it lifted in school? Like you no longer have it. Is that right. what you're saying? Okay. They no longer um, have SM, they're fully verbal, but is there a risk that it might return and they've lifted so, their diagnosis too soon? So the key to treatment is building effective coping skills. So even when anxiety is present or there is a challenge or changes happen, that the skills are there. And when you have a child, it's teaching parents, right? So much of our work is teaching parents. It's tremendously the biggest part of what we do, honestly. As children get older, they're active participants for sure. And through young kids, it's game playing and so forth. But they both have to be active in this. So the hope is, and I mean, we see this every day all the time, is that once a child is verbal, they that what Urban was saying with independence, self-confidence, all of that, that's important too. So it's building up the whole person. It's not just she became verbal in that moment, in that time. So I use the word functioning functioning, functioning socially, are they able to engage with their peers and communicate to the best of their ability and reach their capacity? In other words, if they have the ability to be a fully verbal, expressive child, are they able to do that with the majority of individuals that they meet? It doesn't mean that when you're nervous, you, you're not answering fewer questions. Like, I mean, even for me, if somebody asks me a question, I don't know, well, I'm not the chattiest, but all right, maybe I am. But the far majority of humans are not. They may answer quieter or less expressive based on their comfort or their connection with that person. That's normal. But are they functioning socially? Are they functioning emotionally? Are they not so anxious or so depressed or that they're able to go to school and participate in life and live their life? Are they functioning academically? Are they able to reach their, are they reaching their potential? Are they, in other words, if they're at grade level, are they at grade level? They have the ability to be at grade level. If they have a learning challenge, are they functioning with the accommodations, interventions to the best that they can, whatever that may be? It's reaching that individual's capacity. If the answer is yes, and they're doing well, and they're a confident social communicator, and they, then I would say, give it a year in school, always. It's a security blanket. And then once you have a full year that the child is a confident social communicator, if they don't have a lot of whys and they're able to function and they're doing great, then I have no problem lifting the 504 or the IEP because I wouldn't recommend it if it wasn't necessary. And it often, they're not utilizing it anyway that whole year. So the reassurance to the family is you haven't utilized it. Like, in other words, she's doing great. And sometimes you don't need a plan 
for them to be aware, right? Erwin, you know this, like your daughter is a fully functioning child, but just knowing the buddy process works for her, it helps her feel comfortable. Knowing that if somebody gets a little anxious in a larger, newer setting, that maybe you don't ask an open-ended thought-provoking question, because at that time for that child, it doesn't mean they're not functioning. It's okay to do those things. And you don't need a plan. Remember that 504 IEP or SHMA IEP? You may not need a plan for them to still get some supports if it's needed. I hope that helps. Yeah. So now with the last few minutes, I just want to go through our all of our parent participants for any final thoughts or any other questions that were prompted. Julie, yeah. you did ask about, you had two questions that I think I can cover in one answer. Alternative ways to build some comfort in the school, especially with support staff and and teachers of specials, and what are some impactful IEP goals? I think they kind of work hand in hand. The, you know, every child is different for what they need. And that's the problem is I wish I could give you like, yeah, here's X, Y, and Z, do this. But the kind of easiest things to say is that with most children with selective mutism being an anxiety, we want to minimize their need to think and process. So any of the, if you're talking about accommodations in, in terms of, cause I think you're, when you say goals, the goal is going to change based on the child and their needs. So if they're completely nonverbal, maybe the goal is they become more nonverbal, they become more engaging and they have a goal of that. And then how are they going to do it? Whatever that child, wherever that child is beginning to function and then realistic expectations. But typically when we talk about interventions or strategies, Teachers should be educated on at least the most basic, which is using the visual supports because that helps children process. We hear a lot in the industry on ask forced choice questions, forced choice questions, forced choice questions, and I'm all about it. And one of the reasons I like it, at least in the beginning, is it gives a child a chance to hear the answer because by hearing a choice, if they're nervous, being an anxiety disorder, they hear it and it's much easier to process. So non-academic kind of goals or strategies should be focused on minimizing their anxiety and need to think and process. So the visual supports, how you use it for that child, again, could be, you know, write and show or show using, you know, intermediary, write and read, however that child is functioning or what their baseline is to move them up to the next level. But what you do is you move them up to the next level, but then in a larger, louder more difficult setting, you may need to bridge down. But as long as you have the basic concepts, teachers learn how to bridge up and down to, to accommodate the child. And that's the beauty of, frankly, the social communication bridge. But also being able, not just that, but like with asking the choice and direct questions, but also allowing nonverbal, if that gets a need met at that time, for young children, well, not your children, but there's a lot of kids where, you know, even at nine, they enjoy games and activities that involve reading of cards or showing of the cards or even fun games that involve, you know, silly words and bridging up to more open-ended thought-provoking questions when the child is able to handle the choice and direct with ease. A really good goal also is to avoid direct eye contact. I see this a lot, but teachers that focus on other children first and avoid direct eye contact to most children help minimize that anxiety for that child. So there are a lot of different types of accommodations and interventions we use based on where that child is and who they are. But those are really good kind of generic ones 
because mm-hmm. I think it works for most. And in addition, ways to build comfort, which as you know, you you know, you said comfort, which for me I love because although communication is our goal, without comfort we're going nowhere. I'm being honest. You can give your order in a restaurant and maybe answer a store clerk without having a connection and comfort with the store clerk, but you're going and practicing in the store. So you're comfortable in the store. But when it comes to peers and teachers and aunts and uncles, that comfort connection and know-how is the fuel to communication. So ways that we do it with support staff are friendship groups, lunch bunches, opportunities. I have a class now where they'll do these fun interview questions or assignments and they'll go around in a group and and interview different people to build that connection. For children in class, meeting with teachers before or after school with a buddy is a really good thing too. Participating in projects and activities led by that support staff. For example, nine plus years old, we have kids starting with clubs and activities. So the teachers there in those areas of high interest is a wonderful way to build connection and and comfort because they're in these smaller groups away from the hubbub of a classroom, building that kind of connection and comfort. Those are just simple ways. Julie, do you have any other closing thoughts or questions as we start to wrap up the episode? Um, Last year, my daughter was starting to become verbal with adults, especially her teacher in the classroom. And that was the first time it wasn't like saying words. It was more making noises like barking like a dog or animal noises. Then this year we started out great and then some unfortunate things happened in school and we digressed. Is there a way to kind of pick up momentum again where my daughter's just kind of stuck? So I would say a recommendation is to kind of work with your treatment professional, like what's changed, what is not in place to bring that back. Did So you said like she's nine, right? Yes. So she enjoyed, like, what does she enjoy that brought her out before? Are they doing a buddy process or do the teachers know how to question her? Do they know how to engage her? Are they doing the pullouts? Are they, in other words, in the middle of the classroom, if she's not doing what she needs to do, like verbalize and be an engaging participant and so forth, then are they doing any accommodations and interventions to help her? build that social connection and comfort and do those strategies away from the group. No, she's in the classroom the whole time. She doesn't get pulled out for any services. Is there a way to do that? Is she mute in school right now? She talks to peers, only peers. Right. So a really good strategy for kids that talk to peers is the use of the intermediary. I'm just putting it out there. So for example, do you want red or blue? No answer, red or blue, tell Rebecca. And then we teach teachers to repeat without eye contact. Okay. So she does want, have like a preferred peer. She does usually answer yeah. to, and then the peer answers for her. So, right. So what happens is with the frequency of that and the comfort, especially as they do games and activities of interest, the children get loud enough, especially if they reading, reading gets involved and writing that they're able to start to just talk directly to the child, to the teacher. There are lots of different goal sheets you can use too, where they increase the distance from their peer and they, again, we train teachers to repeat without eye contact. So the children, especially a series of questions. So it's not just one question. These are ideal things to do in a lunch bunch, a friendship group, a small group in the back of the room so that it's frequency. But in addition to the one peer, a really strong recommendation is to try to find other peers that she can connect with. I will say if children are too dependent on one peer, 
children, it can be a letdown and it can be really upsetting because what happens is it's very normal for kids to have multiple friends. And so if there's a lot of like expectation on one peer, like that child is like, this is my bestie. And then all of a sudden your best, her bestie or his bestie is playing with another child that can be really heartbreaking. So I always recommend families try to find at least three plus kids that your children can be friends with because you never, ever want one child to be that person. And I'm not saying, Julie, that's the case. I, it just, it just spurred my thoughts to say it because I see this so often. And this is why I tell schools all the time, you need three to five buddies pair group with and sit with and parents don't just focus on one play date because, or one child, you've got to start getting other kids in. And if it's through clubs and activities, again, kids at this age, clubs and activities could be big and overwhelming and loud and large and lots of people. There's opportunities within the school that you guys can work to do a lunch bunch, a friendship group, a club. I have a nine-year-old doing a chess club right now, and he's the leader of the chess club, and he's a big shot with that chess club, and he's really amazing. And that's how I got him verbal with comfortable and verbal with me. He was showing me the chess pieces, and we were kind of playing chess online, and all of a sudden he beat me, and he just, like, that was such a confidence booster. So what are they good at and what can they do in small groups and maybe even helping them with others? So I'm bringing this up, Julie, because something happened where it affected her self-confidence and self-esteem. And I'm wondering, like, she doesn't know how to get out now. So we have to set up the, we have to set up the world for her to become mm -hmm. successful. So it's not all about your daughter. It's what can we do in the classroom, in the home environment to build her back up and to give her those skills and so that she sees what she's doing. Erwin, do you have any last thoughts or questions? I just wanted to add on to the evolving friendships because especially, you know, in middle school, interests change and evolve. So they sometimes kids that my daughter was really good friends with before have different interests now. Mm -hmm. And of course, naturally, she, she shifts to those kids who do have a common common interests with her yep. and yeah but how do you how do you I guess how do you like maintain those friendships those old friendships even though the the interests have evolved yeah I, I think that if you that's really not that's a hard answer that's a hard question to answer I'll tell you why because we grow and we change and along the way sometimes we don't stay friends when you're a, a child and your interests change and that chi other child and you just don't have the same interests, it's okay. It doesn't mean you have to force the friendship. Just like as an adult, you know, as you journey through life, you're connect you may have one or two that stick with you through the journey and then all of a sudden, you know, more come in and then a couple drop off because that's life. But you have a few that just hopefully are with you throughout your life. And it's more than just your interests at that point. But often with children, it's not like that. It's based on interests. Unless you're family friends and they've grown up together and they're just used to hanging. And even then it's hard. I've had a lot of kids in my practice over the years that around this middle school age, their interests just are changing. They go through puberty at different times. They physically change. Their interests change. Their academic levels are different. And they just don't feel like they have a lot in common. And if a family forces a friendship, it really doesn't work for either of them. And they feel bad about themselves because everyone wants them to be friends, but they'd have nothing in common. So I would say that not to write these kids off, but if your daughter is sharing, like, 
I don't really have anything. Like, we don't have a lot in common, dad. I would listen to her. Remember one of the things for fostering independence and self-confidence is listening and having open dialogue and assuming that it's not a way out. Like I, I don't want to go to school like that sort of thing, or I'm not going to, you know, but it's more of like, look, dad, I, I just don't feel like we have a lot in common, but I met so-and-so, so-and-so, and I love hanging out with her. I would listen to her and I'd be okay with that. And sometimes it's hard, especially if you as parents are friends. <laughs> if she just doesn't have anything in common with that child anymore, then maybe you just do things as a family and not necessarily one-on-one -on -one anymore. Daphne, do you have any other last-minute thoughts or questions? Yeah, so going into next year's school year, we're thinking of going into a Montessori school. Do you have any thoughts how that would be beneficial for her? So... My only thoughts with that are you need to meet with the school. I love the Montessori concept, but when there are often times with Montessori that I've run into some conflicts with some, others have been fabulous where it's that open, the different ages and so forth. It can work to their advantage, that openness and just the way they kind of rotate around and they work with different ages. It can be a big shot role. It can be kind of free and open. And it's a little bit different of an educational philosophy. Some kids do great in that environment, but some kids need a lot of structure, routine, consistency, predictability, and a little bit more of like with the school-based accommodations intervention. So you're moving into a private school. So you, I recommend whatever school it is, Montessori, a private school of a different nature, you need to meet with them okay. and you need to work with your therapist to come up with what are your child's needs, that my child will thrive on this. My child will thrive with the buddy process. Are you willing to can stay consistent? I've had Montessori schools be like, yeah, we're no problem with that. I've had other private, private schools say, no, we do not do the buddy process. We only have eight kids in the class and we do not pair in group. And we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do a lunch bunch. We can't like, they're like, can't, 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 can't. I say to that family, there's not much I can do and recommend to you if they're not able to put the basic setups together. You know, if they're not able to do what's really needed and they're not willing to question the right way and maybe pair and group to kind of, I mean, they're going to be rotating buddies in and out. We never stick with one or two buddies. We rotate buddies in and out as comfort and communication progresses, but you have to talk with them. If you feel good that they're able to set it all up, then I say, have a great time. I mean, I think that's wonderful, but you always have to meet with them. It's like even going to summer camp. You have to talk with the director. Are they willing to do? Some of the basic accommodations, are they willing to pair your child? Are they willing to kind of ask questions a basic way? As children are starting to overcome SM, some of those basics have to be in place. I, there's no way that it's going to work without some of that basic framework, how to question, when to question. It really is important. And the practice and the exposures are absolutely critical. So you can't just go to your therapist and think, all right, we've been in therapy every week now for two years. Why isn't she verbal in school? Why isn't she giving her order in a restaurant? Why isn't she playing with friends? If nothing else has been done outside that therapist office, I would be shocked that you'd have minimal progress because of evolution and time, but you won't have as much as you could if you were really working those exposures. So you say that it's the absolute requirement that she has that support in the school system or whichever. I think she, yeah, I think that, in, I mean, I don't know how functioning your daughter is. I'm not working with her. Right. But if you have a child that's struggling socially, communicatively, and she is, let's say, mute and not able to, and it's affecting her ability to function socially, 
and it's affecting her self-confidence, then she needs some, some setup in school, accommodations and interventions so that progress can occur. So if I'm only going to ask open-ended thought-provoking questions in the middle of a group, that's not going to work for your daughter. Perhaps it might, she might get to that point and maybe, and maybe like Erwin's daughter could maybe do that now, but other kids may just be able to point and nod. I don't know where your daughter is. Right. So what I'm saying is based on where your child is and what her needs are is where they need to be willing to start her. So you she want to start at the, yeah. Mainly she communicates via writing or buddy system because she's been with these kids for five years now and they're all her best friends. She speaks to all of her peers. She only doesn't speak to her teachers. That's the only people she yeah. has to speak to in the school. And whenever right. she verbalizes, she uses a little bit of sign language and then she or she'll write if she has a question. So here, here's, here's something I'm just going to state. Those that know me know I'm very blunt and to the point, but it's meant in a really good, healthy way. If your child has the ability to speak and she can, and she does, she shouldn't go years not talking to teachers. End of story. Okay. She shouldn't be using sign language as a enable. Sign language is used in a moment for an accommodation, a thumbs up if that's all she can do in that moment, like academically or she's in a bind. But you don't want to master sign language and cut because that's she has the ability to speak. So you should be taught. I would talk to your treatment professional about specific strategies to help her unlearn her mutism with teachers. And some kids that have gone years, nine plus years, like nine years plus, are what we call speech phobic at this point. They've learned so long not to talk to teachers, they don't know how. So even the use of the verbal intermediary doesn't work and they get stuck. And then like for me, I've developed something called the ritual sound approach of unlearning conditioned mutism by taking sounds and shaping them into words. And I do this, I've done this with adults because they're so stuck, they're so ingrained. And this way of step by step by step and adding these people to their club or their, you know, verbal club, whatever the kids or the adult decides to call it, it helps them unlearn this condition mutism. And it's, and it's a transitional strategy, just like the verbal intermediary, but it's very specific. And so I, I'm not saying that's what you need to do. I'm saying like, there might be other strategies. And I would absolutely talk to your treatment professional about really focusing on that because she should not go years not talking to a teacher. I'm being honest. Okay. That's, uh, uh, that's not needed. She can do this. Like she'll be able to, when she has her roadmap and the teachers are doing it too. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. No, it's super helpful. And I need to hear that from someone who's, who's. I know I kind of said it the way it was. No, that's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, I believe that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much to each one of our parents who participated, Daphne, Erwin, Julie. All of your questions were super thoughtful, and I hope our listeners took a lot away from it. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to selectivemutismcenter.org. If you have questions on anything covered in this podcast episode, we want to answer them. Please head to selectivemutismcenter.org forward slash ask D-R-E and we'll do our very best to answer them in upcoming podcast episodes, Smart Center newsletters, and on social media. Thank you.